Welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. My name is Anthony Oliver and today we're going to talk about transforming UK transport by adopting an integrated systems approach. So what does that actually mean in practice? Well, despite multiple local and national investment programmes over decades, the UK still seems to lack transport infrastructure that's capable of providing reliable and predictable journey times. We certainly have a multitude of available modes, cars, trains, aircraft, buses, trams, taxis, bikes, etc. But we consistently seem to lack the ability to join these up to create a seamless, efficient, cost-effective door-to-door journey. As a result, the car dominates our transport, providing a personalised service for those that can afford it, but at a growing social and environmental cost to us all. It's my pleasure, therefore, to welcome Sue Kershaw to the Infrastructure Podcast today to discuss the concept of a new integrated systems approach to transport. Sue is Managing Director for Transportation at Contractor Costain and spent a career working to create better transport systems. Sue, welcome to the Infrastructure Podcast. Anthony, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, let's get straight into the challenge, Sue. Uh, You recently took part in an IC President's Roundtable on the future of the UK's national transport strategy, at which you made the case uh, for a new integrated systems approach to transport strategy. So, I mean, what is what is an integrated systems approach to transport? It's a really good question, Anthony. Basically, if you consider that post-Brexit and post-Covid, we are really a tiny, tiny island in this whole big world of ours with lots of different systems that work completely independently. And you'll know this as a consumer when you try and get from A to B using several modes, you've got to use several tickets, you've got to make sure that you check all the timetables, etc, etc. And in our AI world, there's absolutely no reason why we couldn't actually connect those together and make the service absolutely seamless. And that's on a local scale, as people have now become much more localised and they're working from home. It's then joining those local hubs together, sort of hub and spoke model, and then it's looking across the whole of the UK. And If you look at Scotland, for example, and Wales, they both have an integrated transport strategy. So they have the big picture. In England, we don't. We have the system thinking, as was shown in Andrew McNaughton's report at the ICE, really clear, crystal clear thinking about how we should deliver a system. But we're not doing it. We're just doing the easy thing, which is I do rail over here. I do highways over here. I do walking and cycling over here. It's totally discombobulated, I think, was the word that Boris used to use. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I mentioned all the different modes that we've got available. I mean, so, you know, for you, I mean, is success um, simply about removing the car as the dominant force in the transport equation? No, I think we've got to think multimodal. I mean, the removal of the car really all hinges around the the way we energise the car at the moment, petrol, diesel or whatever. If we move to hydrogen, we move to electricity, you know, the car then can serve particularly the rural areas where it's very difficult to have public transport. So I don't think any one mode is at risk at all. I think we just have to think wider. I mean, if you take aviation, for example, and the EVATOLs, um, you know, that is the future of moving around in from city to city with eight to ten people uh, they are going to be flying taxis you know that's a brand new world it's already happening it's been authorized in several countries and you know we're building the infrastructure for it in the UK so I think it's just thinking wider and trying to actually join in 
the walking and cycling bit much more holistically than it is now. An example of that really I've discovered of late in London with um, the Elizabeth line, which is the spine going through the whole of London. People are actually using that as a mode to get to somewhere quite close to where they want to get to, but not quite. So a 10 or 15 minute walk or cycle ride and they're there. So people are thinking differently. It's better for our minds and our health as well. So no, it's not just getting rid of the car. It's just thinking wider. I mean, that was a point about the Elizabeth line that um, Habinda Birdie made to me in the Infrastructure Podcast very recently, that people are prepared to walk further just to use that excellent bit of infrastructure. I mean, you've been wrestling with integrated transport strategies throughout your career, first at Transport for London, uh, then as Deputy Director of Transport at the London 2012 Olympics. I mean, to what extent do you think the UK needs to you know, entirely rethink its national transport strategy, maybe to, to mirror something that, uh, that that's going on, as you say, in Scotland? Yeah, I really think now is the time, now that Treasury is actually devolving money to the regions rather than talking about devolving it. So the West of England Combined Authority, for example, has recently awarded £1.2 billion for their integrated transport. Now, that is a lot of money to put towards all of the modes, but it's real and it's happening. And I think if you join up all of these sub so the transport bodies, you know, the, the southeast of England's got one. There, there's lots of little ones all around the country. Join those up. We've already got the infrastructure. We've got the professionals who know what they're doing. When we combine their thinking and plagiarise some of the thinking and use it more than once, then you've got a real opportunity to make a difference. But ultimately, though, it's 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 hugely complicated. And, and you know, what we all want is to be able to get where we need to go, arrive when we expect at a fair price without causing social or environmental damage in the process, which is a complicated equation. I suppose, is that why integrated transport is such a difficult concept to embrace? It is. It gets into that too big, too complex, too difficult box. And I think that's for two reasons. One is that no one's willing to write a very high-level strategy that you can then devolve down. And also, no one's prototyping it. So if you took a small area of the UK um, and said, let's try it, you know, let's try it round Oxford or Cambridge, let's join Oxford and Cambridge with a railway line, and then let's build houses around it. You know, that sort of thinking so that people can instantly see the benefits and also locally become involved in that transport. Mm -hmm. Because, of course... Transport, as you say, is a system. You know, your background is in program management. You're a visiting professor at the UCL Bartlett School of Construction uh, and Project Management. I mean, how would you describe that systems approach that is needed in transport? I think, number one, never talk in systems speak because no one will understand you except other systems engineers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to just describe, really, the the kind of, if you think of a V shape, then you have the requirements down one side and the outcomes up the other side. And then what you constantly do, you constantly validate in horizontal. So it's it's really simple. You know, my requirements are this and I want the outcome to be this and I'm going to check it along the way, which is the project management side of it. Mm -hmm. So that's equating the inputs uh, to, to the outputs that you require yes. on every step of the way. I mean, I read an article recently uh, 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 that followed the dis uh, uh, some discussion, which you said that the ICE's latest report on a systems approach to infrastructure delivery is almost like a picture book. Yes. Um, and you say that you know it, it has to be readable. The strategy has to be readable, descriptive, and exciting. I mean, does it not just simply have to work? I mean, what does it have to be kind of exciting to look at? Well, you know. 
Anthony, by yourself, engineers are very, very not good at writing, let's be honest. And they, they jump straight to the technical and they jump straight to the um, sort of almost to, to the person on the street, incomprehensible prose. If you have a picture in your head, you can remember it. And I right. think having that kind of route map idea that you're going from here to here and then along the way you'll do this, it, it just brings everyone along with you. So you mentioned some quite radical approaches. I mean, you're flying taxis, etc. I mean, how radical do you think we're going to have to be to develop this national transport strategy that's, that's, that's integrated? I think we need to really think long and hard. Um, I mean, everything's changing in our world at the moment, almost on a daily basis. So if you think... For example, why don't we use the roads differently? So why don't we use the roads at night when they're quiet to bring in all the freight to our towns and our cities and then disappear mid-morning and allow the, the customers to come in? You know, why don't we think differently about our port strategy now we are post-Brexit? You know, how can we invest money in the ports and how can we join up the ports properly to the rail systems and the road systems? Because they're not... You know, look at the A12, it is not joined up. Um, so it's it's that and also I think people's choices to live and work locally too, especially if they're older or disabled. You know, actually having a, a car just turn up, a pod turn up outside your house to take you to the doctors or the supermarket or whatever, that will change people's lives out of all recognition. And that yeah. then you have the sort of the user-friendly side of it where... Yes, you're looking at integrating the systems, but then you're looking at how transport can actually make people's lives better. That, to me, okay. is the difference. Are there any examples around, from around the world that we should be kind of emulating? I think France has, has done quite a good job at their sort of uh, transport planning. I think um, Canada's beginning to, but obviously they've, they've got a lot more space, which makes it a lot easier. Um, and I think, you know... You couldn't. I found this on the Olympics. You can take best examples from all around, all around the world, but you've really got to build something that works for the UK. And in my view, if we had something radical like a Minister of Infrastructure, then suddenly you'd have one one centre of thinking for the whole of Whitehall. Well, that what to, to break down those silos. I, mean, I know it's something the National Infrastructure Commission has talked about before. These the silos of thinking, where you get thinking only about roads, thinking only about rail, thinking only about energy. That that ministry for you would be the, the, the way to break those down. Yeah, yeah. And it would be infrastructure in its widest sense, which is basically everything we need for the fabric of society to survive. And, you know, actually having someone join you, I mean, in that respect... Now, integrated transport would just, just be a tiny, tiny bit of, of that remit because then you have to join all the other remits up. So it's, it's quite exciting. And Sue Kershaw is head of the new Ministry for Infrastructure, maybe. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit more about you, Sue. I mean, you started your career as a civil engineer, the daughter of a civil engineer, and you were born in New Zealand. You spent your childhood following his, your father's work around the world in places such as Pakistan, uh, Nigeria. Um Let's travel in your 40-year career, but has it been as exciting as, uh, as your father's? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I think my dad is one of the last dam builders because now it's not PC to build dams, is it? Um, but extraordinarily exciting. And it was, a, it was a great, great feeling to live in a country and really understand the people, a different country to your own culture and learn the culture. Um, but that was a different world when you know people went overseas and they they moved jobs or countries or schools or houses every two years. We've got a very much more consolidated society now. So although I've worked in Bangkok uh, for five years, 
it has mainly now, my career really is in the UK and my contacts are in the UK. And I think we have been blessed with the ability to build major infrastructure projects and programmes over the last 30 years. You know, you can name them, you can reel them off and we're using them, you know, like the Elizabeth line now. And it's, it's you know, if you go and see HS2 and see the TBMs in action, that is the most amazing thing to see. It's like Thunderbirds on steroids, you know, so you can't help but get excited. You really can't. It's it's just wonderful and it's... Uh, it's great fun every time I take someone who's not in the construction industry out on a site visit. And this is, you know, with the, with the foremen and with, with the, um, you know, people that are actually working on the site. They are almost infused with enthusiasm. It's absolutely brilliant for our industry. No one really knows or realises how exciting it is until they're right in the thick of it. And as I said, I've been really, really lucky to be part of that. Been involved in some fantastic projects. And as I say, your career, you've been involved in the construction of Canary Wharf, the Jubilee Extension, uh, and you moved into project management, you know, first with Transport for London and then the Olympic Games in 2012 and the consultant CH2M and KPMG. You're now at Costa. I mean, how do you describe, how do you describe your career to date? I think my career today, I, I would, if I was to, you know, really condense it down into anything, it would be programme delivery. That's that's what I'm good at. That's what I love. Um, the civil engineering bit's great. That was a great foundation, but it is program delivery. And I, I was really, really pleased at uh, UCL to be part of the MBA in major infrastructure delivery. This is the first is the one Bartlett, in the yeah. world. It is just the Bartlett. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And when we had, you know, we, we ran a prototype this time last year on the module that I'd produced on governance and assurance and we had the best of UK talent helping us deliver that. You know, we had Mark Wilde there. We had uh, Mark Thurston. You know, I could reel off the names. You'd know all of them. But to have that talent in one room, sharing it with young people from the UK and overseas was just phenomenal. It, to me, that was a real mm. marker in terms of the UK and how good we are at what yeah. we do. Now that's about sharing lessons, I imagine, as well, because you know, you know, the reality is that not all projects get off to the right start. Not all projects uh, finish how they are anticipated. Um, I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from a lot of projects around the around the UK. Yeah, and it was great being at the Crossrail event uh, two weeks ago. They've, you know, with the APM, we've launched a, a really good um, lessons learned document that is widely available to anyone who'd like it. It's it's just great that along the way they were capturing the lessons as opposed to in the olden days. It'd be like six months afterwards, everyone's forgotten what's happening. Right. So a real living legacy. So why do you join Costain at this point in your career? You know, you're launching yourself at the, the sharp end of the business. Um, why Costain now? Well, it's interesting. I, I feel like it's uh, a bit like a salmon swimming upstream, Anthony, if I'm honest. Because <laughs> <laughs> I started my career with Taylor Woodrow at Heesham Power Station. Um in the day so yeah no it's great coming back to a contractor I, I love the sort of clarity of thought and the just let's do it sort of attitude and what I'm really interested in is helping Alex Wall my CEO transform the company um, I did a transformation at the Olympics from capital delivery to operations and here I'm, I'm working with the team to transform from a, a pure complex delivery company into a complex delivery company plus a delivery partner. And what does a delivery partner mean? 
that means you actually deliver on behalf of clients. So when I was at CHQM, I ran five delivery partner contracts for HS2, but they tended to be more staff augmentation. What I'm building up here is a genuine partner. So the eyes, the ears, the arms, the legs of the clients who deliver and ensure delivery of, of their projects. And that allows the client then to become a much more intelligent client, almost in the Project 13 speak. You know, they, they are a capable client. Um, and that, to me, is the beginning of something very interesting across the whole of the UK, because I can see the need for that as as the civil service shrinks and as the arm's length body shrink, they still need to deliver, whether it's major capital projects or maintenance or renewals or whatever. And if they've got a trusted partner to do that, that's really going to help them do it. And the good news is there's an awful lot of um, a potential and an awful lot of investment coming down the pipeline uh, you know, to, to, to ensure that those um, uh, project management skills can actually be rolled out and we can keep learning and improving. I mean, you are the first ever woman to lead uh, the Association for uh, for uh, Project Management uh, and you've won several awards uh, as a leading woman in infrastructure. I mean, what's been your secret for success? I mean, are you, are you do you consider yourself to be a role model? It's funny, you know, because I'm, I'm not a sort of big I am person, Anthony. Um, I've, I've tended to go with the big projects, follow the big projects, you know, the UK and overseas, and, and really get involved in it and be curious and want to learn and never, you know, I could never ever imagine joining a company at 21 and, and then retiring at 65 and being given a clock. You know, that, that would kill me, I think, literally. Um, so I think it's been curious and also empathetic understanding other people's positions because I've worked client side contractor side consulting side big projects and small like I can very quickly flip into someone else's boots and that really helps the arguments and the discussions but I think the big secret of my success is just being me because I can't bullshit and I can't lie and <laughs> I just and it's it's really interesting because the, the the new models of leadership are very much sort of built around those sort of coaching aspects now and empathetic. And even if you look back 10 years, they weren't. You know, you had to be a sort of army type leader to, to lead an organisation. But now it's completely flipped. So I think actually my time might have come and I hope that other people like me, their time has come as okay. well. Well, give us a quick insight into the uh, the Sue Kershaw world beyond work because I mean you work a lot you're very very busy and what what do you do when you're not rushing around at work what I try and do is stuff all my exercise into the weekend so (laughs) that's walking up to the gym and then it's uh, pilates yoga weightlifting and swimming and then walking back so it's uh, completely different from the working week well let's do a little um Sue's transport story. I did this with Rachel Skinner recently. Uh, a few quick fire questions. What's your What's your most frequent form of transport, Sue? Train, and particularly the Elizabeth line because it goes to Canary, Canary Wharf to Maidenhead. <laughs> okay. What's your favourite transport mode? Public transport. Any, any particular one? All of it. The whole lot. As long as it's integrated. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what steps have you taken to cut your transport carbon footprint? Well, I don't have a car. So I do use literally public transport for everything. All right. And, and how has that, that worked out? Brilliantly. In London, my buses come along every three minutes at Canary Wharf, so you don't even have to run for them. It's super. What was your last delightful integrated transport experience? Well, this is interesting because as Costain, we're trying to raise money for the Samaritans. And um, Alex Vaughan has been going on a set of walks every single weekend to, to raise money and... 
on Good Friday, it was in London, walking the Thames path. So um, myself and a colleague met him at the Cutty Sark and we walked up to Greenland Pier and then we did the integrated transport bit to meet them at the end. So we went on the Uber boat, a rickshaw, the DLR, the underground, and then we, we met them at Putney Bridge. And it was, it was just so good to see what you could do in one day in London. Well, London, of course, is a specific example of where it actually it's got the it's got the the modes, it's got the capacity, it's got the capability to deliver that. I mean, what was your last integrated night uh, transport nightmare? I have to be honest; it was uh, National Rail during the strikes. It was just a nightmare for everyone, and it took so long to recover the services. I, I really felt for people who you know planned journeys months ahead for special occasions or for work, and they were just they were stuffed basically, and it's just awful to see because it's such a good service usually. Yeah. You talked about uh, radical approaches, uh, flying taxis, and have you ever used micro-mobility, e-bikes, e-scooters? I have used an e-bike. It's fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely wild. It's in January, um, going up a hill to Canary Wharf, and it's about three degrees, so I was freezing to death, but holding on to this thing that was going, it's lovely, lovely. You've, you've limed it, as they say. Yeah. Um, who or what is your integrated transport hero? I think my hero is Andy Lord, Commissioner of TfL, because he continues the, the great legacy that TfL has always had as being integrated, forward-looking, you know, working for the customer, um, celebrating the diversity of the workforce, and then taking all of that learning and sharing it you know, free of charge to other authorities. It's a great, great organization he's a great leader okay well let's just build on that i mean you've been involved in, in delivering many projects as we discussed um and you, you mentioned the the launch of the crossrail learning legacy program i mean why has it uh or why is it still so difficult to deliver uh, some of these projects um not only on time and to budget but also to meet uh, the kind of expectations that are set out at the start I think people were over-optimistic at the start because you want to get approval to go ahead. So you do your business case and, um, you know, you work out what the funding is and what the benefits are. And But you never, I don't think we're ever given a chance to realistically say over the lifespan of a project, some of them 10, 20, 30 years, that the outcomes are actually going to be this, you know, worst case, best case, etc. No, it's going to cost X billion and it's going to be delivered at seven o'clock in the morning on this date. It's totally unrealistic. You've got to be real and pragmatic, you know. I mean, look at what's happened with inflation. Inflation has cost the industry hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds and no one's got any money to stump up for it. So I think it's it's being realistic at the start and maybe doing mega projects as, as HS2, for example, is in two phases at the moment but maybe it should have been in 10 phases you know right. just to actually keep recalibrating as you go along okay of course now you're at costa and i imagine at the sharp end of delivery you you, you would say that the supply chain involving the supply chain uh to help uh well, can help influence this predictable delivery absolutely and, and right at the beginning to pre-procurement the supply chain should be asked to come together and just discuss the ideas a client has of delivering X, Y, and Z, you know, and with that experience, they can actually hone what the client needs and and make sure that they collectively can deliver it. And a recent example of this is on CP7 with Network Rail, where a procurement was a set of, I think it was 18 workshops, 
done collaboratively with the client and with the competitors to actually work out the scope, the cost and the risk. It, it was phenomenally different, but my goodness, you know, when you compare that with just receiving a tender, filling it in and sending it back, you know, which one are you going to get the best deal from? Right. Well, just to finish off with, Sue, I mean, going back to the original premise of this podcast around adopting, adopting an integrated systems approach to transport, um, you know, I know that project managers like you like to set out a vision for success. Um, so when it comes to creating this integrated transport strategy for the UK, what does success look like to you? Well, to me, it's a, a seamless network of public transport that's affordable. That, that to me is, you know, it just works in a blink. You can buy a ticket from your home and end up in Edinburgh with one press of a button. And you know you're going to get there on time and safely. And what's stopping that happening right now? I, th- I think there isn't a political sponsor or a will to do it. it. As I said before, it goes into the too difficult box. And I think that's, that's unfortunate because we would all benefit. Everyone would benefit. But no one's strong enough or brave enough to do it. Or maybe you can be, Sue, when you take over the Ministry for Infrastructure. (laughs) Sue, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me today on the Infrastructure Podcast. Good luck with solving these integrated transport challenges. Uh, I think it's definitely a challenge that is worth taking on uh, for all of us. So thanks very much for joining me. My pleasure, Anthony. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. As I say, that's all we've got time for today, but we will have more from the Infrastructure Podcast uh, and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues faced across the sector. If you haven't done so already, do check out the new Infrastructure Podcast website, www.infrastructure-podcast.com, where you will find background information and all the latest podcasts to listen to and to share. So thanks for joining us. Thanks again to Sue, and I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Uh